What's up, guys? It is Friday, October 16th, 2020, and this is another edition of the FritzCast. Got new lighting up so that when I record at night, it's not all dark and dreary anymore. It's it's nice and it's bright and it's out there. And uh, and hey, it's new. It's upgrades and, and things of that nature for the FritzCast. It's great. It's awesome. Uh, so... I'm getting ready to play for you a really awesome interview with Anthony Del Colo. Anthony Del Colo has been my sitting state senator for uh, the past three and a half years. Uh, four years, right? It's an election. He's running for re-election. Uh, and this was a great opportunity for me. Uh, I've had the opportunity to talk to lots of candidates running, lots of libertarian candidates, obviously. I've been able to open up the doorway, talk, talk to Todd Hagopian, talk to Adam Kokesh, talk to... Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen and all that. And it's been great to do that. And I have even more on tap to come on on the show. But uh, Anthony Del Colo is a Republican uh, here in Delaware in District 7. And uh, what's amazing is that he's a Republican in a very, very heavily Democratic uh, district. Uh, you know, it's a, it was an uphill battle for him to win his seat. It was very unlikely that he was going to win his seat. By the numbers, at least anyway, on paper, at least anyway. And we actually talk uh, a great deal about it and a, a couple other th- other things, too. Excuse me. Skipping over my words. So I don't want to raffle on about too much of what's been going on in the, the news media this week. We had two town halls uh, from Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I've watched the Joe Biden town hall. I have to now bring myself up to snuff and uh, watch the... Donald Trump town hall so that I can compare and contrast those accurately and all that. But uh, I don't want to talk about any of that because the conversation that I had is a great conversation uh, from somebody with a great political philosophy, I think. And it's it might not be 100% rah-rah, sis-boom-ba, libertarian, but, you know, somebody like me, who's an incrementalist and a little more balanced towards the center there, I think it's good for... You guys to hear it uh, because I I absolutely love Anthony as my representative, and he's done great work. And I want to let him speak for himself. So gear up and get ready because this is Anthony Del Colo on the Fritzcast. All right, my guest this week, ladies and gentlemen, is my very own state senator, Anthony Del Colo. Anthony, welcome to the Fritzcast. It's good to be here, Fritz. Yeah, appreciate you having you on, and then you are—you're actually a first for me. You're the first elected official. I've—I've I've interviewed a lot of people running for uh, for various offices, uh, but you're the first sitting elected official that I'm that I'm interviewing. So you you get to have that honor. That's wonderful. I think you were the first. Uh, I think you were the first CEO that I spoke to, or one of the first after I was I was initially elected. So that was, uh, you know, I guess it's it's sort of serendipity coming full circle. Yeah, yeah, and it's great. And that's actually something that I'm going to play into in a little bit. Uh, before we really dive in, tell my, uh, tell my audience just a little bit about you uh, prior to your nomination. Like, like, who's Anthony Del Colo? What does Anthony Del Colo do for a living? Absolutely. So I'm a, the oldest son of a small business family. Uh, father's an electrician, has an electrical contracting company. Mom was the bookkeeper and kind of like in-house uh, accountant type of person family worked very hard together to get that going um, very awesome childhood I was I'm proud to say I was adopted uh, my parents wonderful wonderful people uh, born in Little Rock Arkansas was in Marshallton for my entire life thereafter uh, up until I got engaged uh, and moved and rented a, a home in Ellesmere for some time with my new fiance. And then after being there for a number of years, we bought our first home. Now I'm out in Breckenridge off of uh, Newport Gap Pike. So that's a little biographical sketch. I uh, went to LaSalle University in Seton Hall. I'm a locally, I went to Salesianum, um, fascinated with history, philosophy, politics, um, political history. I, uh, before I was elected, I began to practice as a lawyer. And I have, for most of my career, done some combination of labor and employment law and uh, civil rights, as well as now getting into a little bit of commercial litigation and some complex civil litigation. So it's been 
really uh, wonderful experience there. And I've enjoyed using my acumen and training as a lawyer to benefit the good and positive outcomes in the General Assembly. Uh, always been interested in serving and giving back. Happy to say that I was an Eagle Scout, am an Eagle Scout, I guess, once an Eagle, always an Eagle. And that kind of um, experience as a young guy uh, taught me a lot of things and sort of put me in the direction of always thinking about how can I give back and it's good to be able to give back in this way. That's quite a full plate. That's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of stuff that you have under your belt, uh, especially for somebody so young. Um, yeah. I'm 35 actually just yeah. uh, a few days ago. Yeah. Well, happy, happy belated birthday to you as well. Then. Um, so what, what drove you into, you know, thinking that you were going to do politics? Like what, what sparked an interest in, in wanting to be, you know, a state Senator? So b- being a attorney, uh, interested in civil rights and the Constitution and the development and history of our country. Um, that, that, those courses definitely had an impact. Um, when I was in Scouts doing the, you know, uh, politics in, your, in, in the world and in the country and in your community, there were, there were merit badges like that that asked you to look at the way things work. And that was interesting. So there's a couple of experiences. You know, I studied European history and early American political history in college. Um, really interested, really fascinated with the intersection between morality and ethics and our policy decisions and the judgments that we make as a society. And I, I personally philosophically believe that the laws that we pass are either overtly or always tacitly normative in some way, trying to get some sort of outcome and we're determining and making value judgments in the context of doing those things. So that whole, that whole long-winded answer is suffice to say that I, I believe it was that orientation going in and being interested in those things. And then being a lawyer and doing a, a nonprofit program called Leadership Delaware, which kind of crystallized my urge to get involved and understand and try to work change in my community and with the way things worked. And then Leadership Delaware is a nonprofit uh, program that takes uh, 20 or so fellows every year, exposes you to 144 of the top leaders in the nonprofit world, the corporate world, the law, politics, uh, you name it, healthcare. And they, so they expose you to these leaders, you hear them for two days a month for 11 months in a row. And, and hearing those folks like that speak and looking at the challenges that Delaware faced whether that be with our budget or addiction or education equity, I think that made me realize, you know, there's an opportunity for somebody who affirmatively wants to solve problems to get involved and to throw their hat in the ring. So I kind of went, uh, went uh, way out on the limb, what most people thought was a crazy decision, ran for state Senate, ran against the president pro tempore at that time of the state Senate, which many say is, is, one of the top two or three most powerful elected officials in the state uh, in a district that's more than double the opposite registration of my party. And so I became the first person to defeat a sitting president pro tem in the general election, I believe based upon my research. And I'm now the only, uh, the only person elected in Delaware to represent a district more than double the opposite of his party registration. So pretty incredible story pretty unlikely story. I've always had a sucker for the underdog, I guess, and I became one. And now here the dog has caught the bus. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, man, um, uh, exactly what I was going to go into next, because uh, you unseated Patty Blevins, who at the time, at the time of the 2016 election, when I was looking over, you know, yourself as a candidate, I was thinking about how Patty Blevins was uh, in her spot since 1990 which yeah. I was uh, in the, in the 2016 election, I was 27. So that's like my entire lifetime, practically. Um, that had to be a daunting task, just stepping in there though, somebody with that much time under their belt. Uh, do, do you think that, uh, do you think that that's somewhat problematic in, in the political you know, sphere, people who get into positions and they can stay in those positions almost unchallenged for for such a long time i do and there were multiple years where she was in fact not challenged where people just didn't run against her that certainly happened i think it's a problem sometimes people 
sometimes that happens because for the right reasons, because the person's extremely responsive, very engaged, you know, like in my case, I would hope that if I wanted to stick around for a few terms that I could, because I give out my personal cell phone number, I respond to people's emails personally, I respond to almost every comment on social media, I try to be very available and transparent and engaged with people. And I try to get their concerns to actually lead to real change uh, in, in the experiences that they're having in the community. So it's definitely, um, that said, although it can happen for good reasons, sometimes it happens for the wrong reasons. Sometimes it's because a person becomes comfortable in their area and the registration deeply favors their party registration, for example. Perhaps they have strong ties in their party, which allows them to discourage people from launching a primary challenge. And then you get this sort of permafrost, if you will, of all the same folks sort of frozen in place. That I think can breed to like an echo chamber effect. It can breed to a lack of accountability and an unwillingness to call things out uh, when they need to be. So I think that it's a, it's a careful balance. And part of the problem is, is that with the way politics are today and with the level of our, of our discourse, it, it's not surprising to me that a lot of young people with their futures ahead of them who maybe would be able to raise some money and do some good, that they don't do it because it's a tremendous amount of time. It's a tremendous amount of, uh, can be a tremendous amount of stress. And, you know, you have to deal with people who are pure hyper-partisan operators that will do anything and say anything to try to beat somebody who's not of their party, which is regrettable. So a lot of factors in there, but I think fundamentally it is uh, not a healthy thing to have somebody unchallenged. If somebody's challenged and there's always an alternative and the person's on their toes and being required to work hard, maybe it would be okay. But what we see in fact is the, is the precise, precise opposite. Usually people go unchallenged, sometimes for multiple election cycles and it does not breed to a good outcome. Yeah, I feel like uh, just as a Delaware voter, oftentimes I just feel like there's a lot of that going on around uh, on, on a local level, I, I, I see the same names over and over again. And then a lot of times, a lot of times I do go into a voting booth and, um, and you see that, uh, you see that they don't have a challenger. There's nobody else on the, on the list. Sometimes that makes me feel like, you know, why should I even bother voting for the person? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I think it's, it's partially a monster of our own creation and it's partially a negative feedback loop from the state of, politics you know like and and it, and it just it varies from person to person like it's funny because i was driving home and i saw emily p bissell uh hospital which is a prominent underused government building in the area that i represent and i remember oh you know there's a person who called me about getting weeds cleared away from the fencing there and vines and so forth and i you know of course i called when I heard and I tried to follow up and make sure it happened, sometimes it happened, sometimes it didn't. But even when somebody follows up and tries to deal with the bureaucracy and get things to occur, um, you know, being one person and having to, to be fastidious and make sure that you follow up. And you, that's one of sometimes, especially with the pandemic, one of hundreds and hundreds of constituent requests. Uh, it, you know, sometimes despite your best efforts, things don't happen the way you would like. But then there's also the other side of that coin, which is the person who doesn't really try uh, to, to address those types of concerns. And then the voters tend to feel like, well, nothing I ask for really makes a difference. So why, why do I bother? And then as the voters get disinterested, I think that kind of creates this sort of alienation almost with, uh, with people and their per perception towards our modern day politics. And I really worked very hard to quash that emotion or to quash that trend by being active and engaged and, you know, coming around promptly upon request and kind of rolling up my sleeves and trying to get it done. Yeah. And I want to speak to that. Um, I'm going to speak to that as well, because in 2016, you, you beat Patty Blevins by about 282 votes. It was yeah. fifty point fifty five percent to forty nine point forty five percent. That that's that's very very close. For no yeah. 
Um, does, does that play into the drive that, that you have of, I mean, obviously I can tell from how you are, you want to be connected with the people anyway. You want to be connected with your constituents. Uh, that's why you've done the coffee. Days. Of course, that's kind of, you know, hard to do in, in times of a pandemic, but uh, you, you do your coffee meetings, you, you respond to emails, you give out your personal cell phone and you've done meetings. I had a, like an hour and a half meeting with you over an issue. Absolutely. You know? So does that play into your drive for that? That not only, not only are you wanting to engage the people, but you want the people to be engaging you? Absolutely. I mean, I want people to have some level of confidence in their government. Gosh knows the circus that's in Washington, D.C., is also a, a basis of frustration and a valid basis of frustration when people who, you know, allegedly have far greater political acumen, uh, legal acumen, negotiating acumen, one would think than a millennial serving as a state senator, and, and they can't get basic relief bills through in the middle of an unprecedented national crisis, it's damning. You know, it's, it's, it's appalling to see the level of gridlock. So I reject that. And, and I try to be an example of somebody who has conviction, but also is open-minded and, and willing to be moderate and thoughtful, but who above all is connected with people. And, and I know that there's a chicken or the egg, almost conundrum or thought problem, if you will. Yes, uh, by getting engaged and being involved, one can get elected in the district that I'm in. If you don't do that, and if you don't try to be the very best elected official you can be, then you will very quickly lose because folks will have no reason to cross cross party lines. Independents won't have any reason to support a Republican with the negative uh, rhetoric that you hear around the party these days, even locally. So if you want to give people a chance when you have those types of headwinds to make a decision and vote for hopefully the, the correct person, yes, you have to do your job and you have to do your job very well. So it's both uh, a positive thing that helps get the right stuff done for people. And it's also linked to my desire to want to see someone around to do that, to perpetuate those feelings by being able to win reelection. So it kind of has created a positive tension in my view for how I approach the job. Yeah. And I want to speak to that too, just because th this seems to be, I can see the character that you have about yourself because some people might be watching this and think, okay, this guy's a Republican. There's lots of rhetoric going around right now that, you know, vote every, vote every Republican out, just vote straight blue on everything because people have lived through the past, you know, three and a half years of divisive rhetoric from national politics and in some cases on down. Uh, but you aren't exactly, um, you're not afraid to stand up to your own party. Uh, you right. called out Lauren Witzke with what she posted, uh, a, a very uh, offensive meme after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, which was something that I was shocked to see a candidate like that post. But it, honestly, I was more shocked to see somebody in the party yourself stand up and actually condemn it because you just don't see that a lot anymore. You don't see people standing up and saying, you know, this is bad for us. This is, this is something that we shouldn't be supporting. Tell me a little bit about that w with your position here in Delaware, especially because you, you are in a minority party. Uh, and, and I know because I'm, in a, I'm a minority voter here. You know, I'm not... Right. I'm not a blue voter. I'm not a blue ticket voter often, but uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting environment that we have. It is. And so, I, yes, I, I think that I have a obligation as a person who believes in right and wrong. I believe that there are core values that should define us as a society and that should define us as Delawareans that go beyond party ideology. And so my first loyalty, you know, it's like, if you think about philosophy, and I do think about philosophy, and I think about having a moral code and trying to think about what's right and what's wrong, certainly when you have a code, you're apt to fail in following that. So I'm just as flawed as, as a lot of other folks. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you're confronted with the challenge, do you try to do the right thing or not? Um, and 
to me, there's like layers of integrity. And so you have to have integrity as, as a son, you have to have integrity as a husband, you have to have integrity as a, you know, and then it layers, right? And then I have to have integrity as what's the next thing? A member of my community, a Delawarean. I happen to be a Republican, so I have to have some integrity as a Republican. And it goes on, but I'm not going to compromise the higher level orders of integrity as I view them in the hierarchy of who we are as people in order to make someone happy that we have some sort of coherency around what? Around tolerating nonsense. You know, great, we've got loyalty, we'll tolerate nonsense. And it's not as if I'm not calling people out on the other side of the aisle. I mean, you know, just recently, um, very recently, actually, uh, I, I and three other of my Republican colleagues uh, were accused of affirmatively breaking campaign finance law, totally def defamatory and slanderous, totally uh, feckless on behalf of the chairman of, of the opposite party to do this, uh, unfounded accusation. But my response was not to pull punches and be like, oh, I don't want to alienate some Democrats that maybe see the, the word Democrat and get upset. My response was to say, you're a bully, you're doing the wrong thing, and you will be called to answer for that in the court of law and in the court of public opinion. So I leaned into that challenge, and I don't shrink from things that I view to be wrong. If I did that, then I would not be fit to be a senator. I wouldn't be fit to be a lawyer. But more to the point, I don't think I'd be fit to be uh, a husband or want to, you know, be, be a person who is a sort of joint head of a household that wants to have kids one day, like what sort of role model would I be? Right, right. And I actually want to play into that for the, the current election cycle now, uh, for, for the people out there that don't know you, uh, I've seen you and I've seen your team. You, you are very active and engaged. You go out personally knocking on doors and talking to people. Uh, and, and that, I think I think that plays a lot into to your character for that. It, it shows that you have that desire to, you know, you're not just sending a team member out or sending out a pamphlet or a flyer. You're actually knocking on doors and talking to people, gauging yes. where they where they stand and what issues they think are facing, you know, in the district and in the state. Uh, how's the 2020 How's the 2020 campaign been going? Because I know number one pandemics affect everything it affects campaigning, yes. obviously uh what has been going on for you for the 2020 run so thankfully i started door knocking extremely early um you know i had hit all of ellesmere and uh some of the surrounding communities before the pandemic hit which was by design you know i wanted to be at the doors anyway and i had time on the weekends and some time after i would get done at the office so it was it was a great thing to do and i'm glad i did um that of necessity had to pause and I switched to phone banking and I also switched to almost solely focusing on pushing out information to my, uh, to my residents and to other residents about what the pandemic is, how to respond to it, uh, the way to get help if you needed it and all the things that I felt like people would need to address that. So, you know, I decided to negotiate this idea to put out a, a bipartisan mailer that was campaign funds uh, that were spent probably the only time you'll ever see this ever in, in an election year where you see a jointly funded mailer to uh, residents. But I funded a mailer that went out to, I want to say 70,000 residents or something like that with a, f a few Republicans and a number of Democrats. And we drew from our, not from public dollars, but from campaign dollars. And the point of that was to send them message we're working together in a bipartisan manner for you during this crisis and here are all the valid relevant numbers and sources of information to help you because there are a lot of people that don't have access to the internet or people who aren't savvy with the access they have that deserve to know that we're here and so i did that i got dozens and dozens and dozens of calls as a result of that i got many calls anyway just because my information's out there and i've always shared it with people so it came in handy during the pandemic to help hundreds of folks with navigating the new regulations or addressing efforts to get unemployment benefits or whatever the case may be, access to PPE. Um, so that almost subsumed everything for a number of months. And then as the pandemic stabilized and as the unemployment benefits stabilized and as the FFCRA and the other relief acts came through, you know, we, we, we're 
I think we're getting great reception. I think we're getting great reception at the doors. Um, you know, I've knocked some of the most heavily democratic areas in the district. Um, of course, with a mask, taking several steps back, speaking to people from, you know, outside from across the, you know, across the hedge as it were, but even in being safe, you know, people's reception has been very positive. Um, and, and I think it's, I think in part the reason it's been positive is because people know who I am because I don't miss civic meetings. When I volunteer to be on a task force to study a problem, I don't miss the meetings. I've been on many task forces, almost too many. It's a wonder my wife has as much patience that she does. Thank God for that uh, with all the stuff I get myself into. But it's, uh, it's definitely uh, been a wonderful experience, I think, because we have laid the foundation of being active and of caring. And so even if somebody hasn't directly interacted with me, you know, many hundreds of them have, but even if somebody hasn't, it's fairly likely that their neighbor or their relative or their friend has. So it's been a very positive reception. And, you know, I can count on one, maybe one hand, maybe one and a half hands, the number of people that have just said, oh, you're not from the right party. You know, most folks hear you out. And once that happens, you can explain where you're coming from. And, and I think likely, if you've done a good job when their vote. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to uh, go off of that also, because uh, before the show, when we were talking, you mentioned that uh, there's some parallels between your campaign and your opponent's campaign uh, to the degree also that uh, I think it speaks to your, uh, your, what you were talking about earlier. Uh, Cause I know you put out a post about uh, a certain pack going around sending out uh materials and information and all that so tell me a little bit about your opponent tell me a little bit about what's going on with this pack too sure so uh my opponent is a is a career corporate lobbyist he's as far as i can tell his jobs have always been as a lobbyist for some sort of large organization often corporations or as an appointed official like he was uh, had, had a stint as the chief of staff of the auditor's office um i think in the context of doing that he even, even in the context of that was ethically challenged because, you know, in my view, I found out it was interesting. He actually put out an advertisement into a circular that focused on a particular community about being a past president of a group called AHEPA. Meanwhile, there were calls during his tenure as chief of staff to, to audit the activity of AHEPA in the context of a board of a local charter school where the Public Integrity Commission had found there was wrong things that happened he's the chief of staff while that's all going on. The Department of Education asked for the audit. The audit's delayed. When it's finally done, the response is, this is worth less than the paper it's written on. They didn't provide the proper parameters. And yet he has an overt context as the past president of this organization that's tied into all of this. As far as I know, made no announcement about a conflict of interest. I think it's just hoping that people don't realize it, but I think folks are smarter than that. So that's one example, but you know, there are other examples that abound. You know, he was the, the lobbyist. He seemed to parlay his experience as a Senate staffer into being a lobbyist for the Motiva Energy Company, a Saudi Arabian-owned uh, energy company that used to operate the Delaware refinery. They pled guilty to criminally negligent homicide during their tenure for someone dying in an oil tank or a, a sulfuric acid tank explosion, and it was preventable. He put out information basically denying that and you know, that's bad enough, but he actually had a website active up until, you know, September, somewhere in September, so very recently, advertising his lobbying activity. You know, he said he relaunched his lobbying group, his public affairs group, after he left the auditor's office, so he's advertising that, and one of his key points of his credentials was, I helped this entity that pled guilty to criminally negligent homicide and ruined someone's, some family's hopes and dreams, I went ahead and, and helped to maintain their license, and he's advertising that while running for office. So that, to me, is a stark contrast between he and myself, and, you know, he cannot run on a record like that, so that leaves him and his supporters, which, by the way, to have someone with that sort of background, to me, is astonishingly hypocritical of the Democratic Party to kind of, like, choose someone like that and, and back someone like that who on the one hand has this record and that's what they've done with their professional life, but now suddenly has progressive values. It seems to me to be astonishingly unbelievable and difficult to comprehend. But, you know, aside from that point, 
you know, where does that leave them? That leaves them with uh, baseless attacks. So very recently, um, and there's a, there's a pack that's registered to do independent expenditures. They've spent some in my race and in some other races. There are certainly packs pouring a lot of money into my opponent's race on the other side. So the Democratic uh, chair decided to come out and accuse me of, of knowingly coordinating with this PAC, which of course is a violation of the campaign fi finance laws with no, no valid basis to do that. And the thing that's really astounding is that in order for him to support that argument, he concluded that I must be coordinating because I've spent virtually nothing on reaching out to voters. But the same report that he references in his press release that he must have reviewed in order to make his argument shows that I've spent over $50,000, most of it on voter outreach. So just to, to see that and to craft a lie that he is aware that this is a falsehood is, is very shocking to see someone in a position of leadership do that. It's shocking to see uh, folks stoop to this level and attempt to try to, to manipulate voters and use deception to win, that, that they're that desperate to win. A very wise Democrat who was a former local town council person was speaking to me earlier today and said, you know, Anthony, that probably means they're afraid of you. And I, I said, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe that is an act of desperation. But, you know, I don't, I don't tolerate bullies. And, and regrettably for them, they're going to have to answer for what they've done. And they're going to do it in the court of public opinion. And I fully intend to see them do that in the court of law as well. So for for 2020 Anthony Del Colo, what is the what are the plans if you're reelected? What are the what are the plans? What what do you, what do you want to see happening uh further in Delaware? I mean to to if I ask you your political philosophy, it's kind of going to be as you said moderate. Um you you're not full-blown conservative or or full-blown liberal. You're somewhere in the middle if I if I could gauge it the right way. Correct. Um, you know, somebody like me, I'm, I'm a very libertarian philosophy uh, or of a libertarian philosophy, uh, but it's not like I'm a, a punched card member and I only vote LP candidates, obviously. I voted for you and I'm voting for you again. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how, how, do you, how do you gauge your own political philosophy and outreach to, to, you know, all the different philosophies that you're playing into? I mean, obviously, Delaware, it's, it's more of a, a heavily democratic state versus a Republican so, state. But. Absolutely. So a lot of what happens on the local level is really not partisan, and that's appropriate because we're talking about infrastructure, fixing roads, making sure the tax dollars are spent effectively, accountability, transparency, fighting the addiction crisis, bringing in good jobs, improving our schools, education equity, supporting our students, making sure the pandemic response is handled appropriately. You know, these things are not inherently partisan. There's a right way and a wrong way to do them. And the right way to do them is the way that leads to positive outcomes in our communities and helps people. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the things that I'm focused on. There are many specific policy goals that I have. They range from increasing access to treatment for people who are suffering from addiction, continuing to support things like the Hero Help Program and deferment of folks who have addiction problems rather than allowing them to get caught up in the system, particularly when they're not engaging in violent behavior, uh, focusing very heavily on the other end of that spectrum where somebody misuses a firearm and they affirmatively harm somebody. I think that we should increase the high end of the possible punishments for somebody who makes an affirmative choice to do that. I think that people are rightly frustrated when they see only proposals coming up that affect law-abiding people about whatever problem when the folks who were trying to target are people who abuse the law and break the law. So, you know, I, I introduced a law like that before. I'm going to introduce a reworked version of law like that again. Um, I do believe in broader criminal justice reform done right, making sure that when someone's paid their debts to society, they have a chance to not recidivate, which leads me into another ma major point, which is access to good paying jobs. I'm proud to be aboard of the Delaware Prosperity Partnership, which advocates for and markets for Delaware to bring good jobs into the state, which changes is a change from the way that we used to do economic development. And uh, I voted in favor of establishing that change to bring in those jobs. I, I'm sitting on the, the Reading Consortium, which is looking at education equity problems with funding education, with the outcomes we're giving to 
some communities and sadly some demographics, which are totally abysmal and not, not able to be tolerated. So we're looking at ways to deal with teacher retention and improving the ability for parents and families to be involved in the educational process and have engagement and ways to, to properly marshal resources so they're appropriately closely fit. You know, if you have a population that's suffering from tremendous levels of trauma, we want to give them the resources to address that so that they can have a, sh a shot to achieve and to accomplish good things. So, you know, those are some of the issues. I'm also passionate about open space and investment in infrastructure and safety, because I think that we want to make communities that are attractive to a 21st century labor force and that, you know, marshal our resources in a manner that we're creating beautiful communities that people wish to live in. So, you know, multimodal transportation, um, making sure we maintain our current infrastructure appropriately for vehicles and so forth. And uh, yeah, there, that, that's a, a whole mouthful, but, you know, these are the things that I hear people talking about. Access to healthcare is certainly a huge one, making sure that we don't overdevelop and, and that we don't use up all of the open space is another one. Uh, having, you know, that keen balance between just out of control development versus intelligent development or redeveloping areas that could use some TLC. Um, those are a lot of the things that I hear. I'm actively engaged with community members and sometimes community organizations to address all of those. I attend their meetings. I listen to their concerns. I rarely miss a civic association meeting or a task force meeting. And, you know, that's another thing that I think you mentioned contrast before. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that in one of my debates, my opponent chose to kind of like scoff at or sneer at the fact that I assiduously attend these meetings and make myself available. I think his words to the effect were, so what we've heard is that Senator Ocolo thinks he should be reelected because he goes to meetings and interacts with voters. My response would be, you're damn right. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's, what, that's how you do the job, you know? Like, so if you, you know, if there are average citizens that show up to these meetings and average citizens that make the time to engage and learn about these things, I would dare say that somebody running for Senate should do so, but I can count on a single hand the time that I've seen him show up at any sort of meeting. He never shows up to any meeting that I could observe twice or perhaps half of a time of one meeting. And uh, it's, it's pretty abysmal. So you look at that level of interest for somebody who wants to allegedly do this job. And I think, you know, you look at the remarks of people on social media, this guy can't even respond to supporters who get frustrated and then reach out to me and say, yeah, I couldn't get a response back from him, but you always respond in 24 hours. It's, it's a pretty sharp contrast for the fundamentals. And he throws out canards about, various policy issues that aren't even really on the agenda or possible to be affected at the state level as a basis for why folks shouldn't uh, support me. And, you know, that's fine because again, it's a distraction from his record and it's the only thing he can say because I've, uh, you know, I've done a very, very uh, aggressive, engaged effort to try to do this job well. Which I, I think is highly important. I can't believe you would scoff off uh, a comment about engaging with, uh, you know, his constituents. That That's bizarre to me. It baffles me. Uh, almost verbatim, I'm going back and remembering. So what we've heard is that Senator Docolo thinks that he should get reelected because he goes to meetings and responds to people. I think folks deserve a little bit more than that. And it was like, well, what more do they deserve? You know, his, his responses to what he wants to see happen about criminal justice reform, we should decriminalize marijuana, already done. You know, oh, I support no, no uh, excuse absentee voting. Well, you know, if we go the way of mail-in voting, it'll be the same thing either way. So he's trying to like claim that I don't support that even though I voted for safe mail-in voting with some adjustments to make sure we're being accurate with how the ballots are handled. But, you know, just trying to, you know, use half of a story or part of a fact and, that's okay. I think the voters are much smarter than that. Uh, one, one of the things I wanted to bring up before uh, we go into wrap-up mode here is uh, also you're, you're somewhat of a, a tax accountability type of guy, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, yes, um, very much so. Uh, yeah, because my audience is probably going to scoff right now. They're probably going to be like, oh, he's talking about taxes. I don't want to live. But uh, to me, at least, you know, I, taxes are a touchy subject among libertarian types. But uh, to, to me, if I, if the choice is you or, you know, Spiros, you know, I want it, it, somebody who's going to be in there to look at what's getting spent, you know, what taxes are coming in and how they're getting spent. 
I think the accountability angle is, is an important thing. Uh, can you talk just a little bit about that? Absolutely. So there are two great examples, one that happened very recently and one that was like a much larger policy proposal that we worked on and finally got implemented in the form of an executive order. So I'll go with the, the broader one. Um, I've always advocated for this concept of a budget stabilization fund, which takes the revenues that come in and captures things that are above and beyond what we need to operate the government for the so-called door openers, the things that we know we need to maintain infrastructure, personnel, certain programs that people rely upon to survive and things of that nature. So we're, um, there were years in there after the recession stopped and once the economy turned over and started to really hum again, where we had far greater revenues than we needed. And we were able to introduce a constitutional amendment, didn't quite have enough votes, but it was a bipartisan proposal to say that we should only spend within certain levels based upon the average of how much other governments spend across the country, the rate at which our population is increasing of certain stripes that need certain things, so that we're calculating how much we ought to spend based upon factors other than how much money do you have? Because if you only determine how much you should spend based upon how much money you have, then you're always gonna spend everything and it's irresponsible. Uh, especially when you look at what you can do with that money, which in this case was to create a budget stabilization fund that is basically like a much more flexible savings account uh, than say the rainy day fund, which is really used to secure Delaware's credit rating and allow us to get really good debt service. So the budget stabilization fund was established at, to the tune of a few hundred million dollars. And we were able to use that to blunt the effects of the new recession that could be on the horizon from the uh, results of the pandemic and the lockdown. So rather than spike everyone's taxes to balance the budget, which is a constitutional requirement in Delaware, we have to have a balanced budget. Deficit spending is not a thing we're supposed to be able to do here. Or uh, cut a bunch of services that folks might be relying upon and, and not having like a real good gauge of, hey, like which services do we need or don't we need? And then it's like you're cutting without having the x-ray, without having the camera inside the patient, right? So by saving that money, we were able to prevent the need to make these sudden aggressive policy shifts that could lead to bad policy, bad outcomes. And an example of that would be the, the fact that Delaware now has the highest real estate transfer tax. It's a regressive tax. It's a foolish tax. It taxes people regardless of their capability to pay it. Uh, and it applies to everyone as long as you're transferring real estate or selling real estate. So it's a burden for people to enter home ownership. It's a burden for people to exit the home that they're in. And it's a dumb tax. And now we have like the highest or the second highest. And we increased it like 50% in order to balance the budget. In the dark of night, at the end, where we try to jam through a bunch of legislation, a practice that I disagree with, without really vetting it before the public hearing process. So that sort of thing is wrong and shouldn't happen. And having the budget stabilization fund decreases the temptation of the political power brokers in Dover to rely upon that type of stratagem to get policy through, which I think is a beneficial broadly, aside from just being fiscally responsible, it's beneficial broadly to how we legislate. So that's the one thing, and it has multiple ancillary accountability effects, I would argue. But the other thing that I think is telling when it comes to accountability of revenue and tax dollars, you know, one of the things that we do with our revenues is with this thing called the grant and aid bill, where government supports a whole host of nonprofit organizations, many of whom do things much better than a government program could, such as the Family Promise, I think, that started just started receiving amounts. They're a lean, mean, uh, homelessness fighting machine. They help people stay off the streets and keep families in particular together when they're possibly going to experience the trauma of homelessness, which is a, a positive thing for our communities to not have that sort of uh, effect on our society. So that's all well and good, but it requires a three-quarters yes vote, if memory serves. There are three-quarters or two-thirds, but it requires a, a significant supermajority vote, even more than to increase taxes, which requires 60% or three-fifths. And the reason for that is that we're actually giving tax dollars to private sector individuals. So that's appropriate to have a vote of that magnitude. Well, this last time around, although they were working on that bill in committee, it usually is like a bill that's dozens of pages long. In this case, it was 50 or over 50 pages long. They released that bill with an hour for the members of the legislature. The committee released it with an hour for the members of the legislature to review before it was brought up for a vote. I disagreed with that. I thought that it was 
ill-advised. It didn't give any members of the public who couldn't attend and pay attention to those meetings the chance to evaluate the contents of it. And the net result of that was that funding was cut from an essential nonprofit that is a very small but very agile nonprofit, which helps with addiction and peer-to-peer -peer counseling that specifically supports people in the area that I represent in and around Newport. That's one of the areas in the seventh. To my great disappointment, when I paused the vote on that bill, which eventually passed unanimously, by the way, we just wanted some more time, so I went not voting to prevent the bill from going forward. I didn't vote against it, I just went not voting because I didn't agree with the process and the way that it was being done. I had no qualms with the contents of the bill. But I went not voting and he put up this ridiculous post about how I was voting against fire companies and the Little Sisters of the Poor and Apple Pie in America. Uh, and, and however, the reason being was to prevent precisely the sort of shenanigans from happening that caused Hope Street, Delaware from being defunded. And his position in an astonishing level of irresponsibility would have directly negatively hurt, negatively impacted and affected the Delawareans that he claims to want to serve. So excellent example of accountability and why it's important to read the bills and what they contain and why somebody who just wants to be a rubber stamp and go along with whatever is being done down there in some ways is far worse than somebody who's actually engaged and cunning in a self-interested way, because at least the per that person would understand what's happening. But somebody doesn't even want to be bothered to read the bill or have enough time to do so and then throws a temper tantrum when I have the audacity to say we should have the transparency and the fidelity to the process. It's not like it would have cause any issues. We were in the middle of the legislative week and we wanted it to be bumped from day one of the legislative week to day two, from like a Tuesday to a Wednesday. So that's an example of reading the bills and having some accountability and why you don't want to have just one party rule. And uh, aside from the general fact that, look, you know, we could have had a statewide property tax. We could have had a tax increase go through, a fee increase go through without the requisite supermajority vote. They tried to amend that off of a bill when I was first elected with a mere majority vote. And I stood up and said, this is unconstitutional and I can't believe that we're doing this. And eventually the person who had introduced that amendment did the right thing and withdrew it. So sometimes it's not just getting bills through. I've been okay at that. We've gotten seven bills through, which is a, it may be a record for a member of the minority party who's a freshman member. So we've gotten a lot of affirmatively good things through and affirmatively good changes to the Delaware code, but we've also stopped some shenanigans and helped make things a little bit more honest. And for that, I'm grateful to have been able to serve. Yeah, no, I, I, and I appreciate that because I think transparency and honesty is, is severely lacking in the political environment right now, it seems anyway. And surprising to say that it, it happens even here on the local level uh, to that magnitude. You know, I, I just, I hope that more, th that we walk more in that direction so that things can get better. Not just, not just on a local scale, but on a national scale as well. Because to, to me, it seems like some of the rhetoric that goes around and, and some of the tactics that are being used, the, the tactics that you're mentioning, where, you know, you're, you're detail oriented. You think that the details matter, matter and the devil is in the details with these bills, you know? So I don't know why somebody wouldn't want to read them and make sure you know, that they're thoroughly understood and, and supported. You there, Fitz? Yeah. I'm still here. Are you... We having a little difficulty? Yeah. Uh, yep. You, uh, you said tactics that you were mentioning, and then it froze, but now it's good again. Can you repeat? Yeah. Just because you were talking about the tactics that are being used, you know, you're detail-oriented. I think – I personally think details are important with bills. You know, I think bills should be simplified. They should be, you know, the details should be understood. They shouldn't be just passed through um, without, you know, even a glance at, at reading it. You know, the, a bill in name only isn't good if, if we're just passing it because it has a fancy name. Agreed. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, there are some things that the DC could learn from Delaware. You know, having a balanced budget is probably one not allowing log rolling. We have a constitutional provision in Delaware which says that anything that's outside of the subject matter of the title of the bill is not allowed to be in the bill, which prevents log rolling. It's, tr it's a tremendous positive effect for transparency. It actually allows a citizen to stand a fighting chance to 
see a bill and read it and look at the synopsis and perhaps understand what's in it. So very, very important stuff. Um, you know, good to be able to prevent people from amending bills with things that are irrelevant to the bill or that are an aside to the bill. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I really do believe that there are some fundamentals, some fundamental almost like voter self-defense items that folks would do well to understand because the decisions we make at the, at the local level in Delaware affect the quality of your schools, the taxes that you pay, you know, your first responders and the criminal laws that could take away your liberty, uh, the quality of your neighborhoods, the way that people drive on the roads, all of the things that you interact with day in and day out in your daily life are directly touched in some way or another by your local government. So it's very, very important stuff. Absolutely. Uh, and, and wrapping up, Anthony, uh, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to bring up? And then also, please leave uh, how people can get in touch with you, any of your social media links, your websites, whatever you have to throw out there, throw it out there. Absolutely. So I don't have a whole lot more subject matter. That was a very robust and, and excellent conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. I want to thank the folks that are listening or that will be listening to this when you put the podcast out. I think it's a tremendous thing to get information to people. And to me, you know, this is like the third or so podcast I've been invited on and I always jump at the chance because it's, it's a great opportunity to have that transparency factor turned up to 11 to, to make a spinal tap reference. Um, I, you know, people can get a hold of me. It's very simple. My cell phone number is 302-275-0742. My email address is anthony.delcolo at delaware.gov. I have other emails that are unrelated to government stuff. If you want to see those, you can just type in my name and they pop up right away. Uh, if you want to follow me on Facebook, I'm Anthony. Uh, I'm either Senator, Senator Anthony Del Colo for my government handle, so to speak, or Del Colo for Delaware for my more campaign oriented page. And, uh, you know, shoot me a, a message, shoot me a text, give me a call. Always happy to talk about your concerns and try to be available. Absolutely. Anthony, thank you for coming on to the show. I appreciate you. you. Like I said, you're the first elected sitting person that I've uh, been able to interview. And I'm very grateful that it, it was you because of how much awesome. I, how much I respect and, and admire you and your work. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Fritz. It's, uh, it's tremendous. I think it's, it's been wonderful getting to know you over the years and having you as a constituent very proud to represent folks like you. And, you know, it's, uh, it's humbling as well, because you, you know, I'm, I'm not immune to the fact that I am a 35 year old guy. And, and, you know, but 15 years ago, I was a, you know, silly college kid. And uh, it's a tremendous thing to, to sit and look at things in retrospect. So uh, thank you so much and Godspeed and be well and be safe.